Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, again, it is our desire, um, as you are speaking in your word, that we would hear you. Lord, your spirit is present among us, and we know that your spirit works to tune our hearts, to help us to recognize what is true. And so that is what we pray for, that your spirit would awaken us to what is real, that your spirit, even as we hear you speak, would awaken us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. So a couple of years ago, I um, was reading a book about church and evangelism, and there's something, uh, there was a, a quote that stuck out to me. A man was talking about how he had um, been engaged in an evangelistic conversation, had, had shared with a college student um, the, you know, the news about Jesus, about how Jesus had died for him, and even why we could trust that this is real. And the college student, in response, said something that kind of I've been remembering ever since, and that is... It just doesn't seem real. It seems true, but it doesn't seem real. And I wonder if you can identify with that. There's something about it that resonated with me. I can think of times where I have been in conversations with people, and it doesn't seem like the thing that is keeping people from believing is the intellectual. It's, it's the feeling. It, it intuitively doesn't doesn't quite fit. And I would say even as I think about myself, that is what I feel, that, that while there is the intellectual question and there's curiosity, when things are hard, when, when, um, when life is in a place where it feels unstable, the hard part is the question of does this seem real? Shouldn't it feel, feel more real? And I wonder if you, if you know what I'm talking about. Maybe this morning you are someone who is here, but you're not quite sure what you think. Um, and, and what's kept you from ever just kind of leaning into Christianity is that you just don't feel like you can believe it. Or maybe you do identify yourself as a Christian, but right now you are finding yourself in a place where you just feel this uncertainty, and it plagues you, and it exhausts you, and you just think, Even if this is true, shouldn't it feel more real? So what I'd like us to do as we begin this time of looking at this passage this morning is I'd like to ask you to do something that's actually kind of difficult. I'd like to ask you to try to almost kind of like step outside of your thinking and of your feelings and ask the question, are your feelings reliable in this regard? That is... If you were to assess how likely your feelings are to get this right, how accurate do you suspect your feelings are in telling you whether or not God is actually real? There's this book that I'm a big fan of, it was writ, uh, written about 10 years ago, called Thinking Fast and Slow by Nobel Prize winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman. And uh, what's fascinating to me about is it's all about kind of the way that we think, the way that we process and come to conclusions of things. And he, and he says that we should understand our brain kind of operating on two different systems. There's the, 
we might call the analytical system. This is the slow in thinking fast and slow. It's, it's the part of your brain that if someone gives you one of those like brain teasers that you're supposed to figure out, completely like eats that up and engages in it. And, and, it's, and it's methodical, it's careful, it can only focus on a little bit at a time, and it just kind of moves through things. That's, that's the analytical system. But most of our thinking and processing is a different system that we might call the intuitive system. Right now, there is a whole lot of data that your body is taking in. You can feel how hard the seat is. You can sense the temperature. There are little bits of noises in the background. There's all of these things that you're consciously not paying attention to because this background operating system saying you don't need to. Something might happen where suddenly like you're looking around, but it's taking in all this information and it's giving you occasionally like these gut feelings or intuitions. This is, this is the other system, the gut, the, the intuition side of things. And it's amazing. So um, one researcher was looking into kind of the way our brains processed, and he was with fire team. And there's this one moment where a firefighting team went into a house in Chicago. And the house is burning, and they were, you know, like trying to douse it in the kitchen. The water was kind of going on the flames. And the commander suddenly just, without really any warning, says, we need to get out right now. And so all the firefighters left, and just a, moment, a few moments later, the entire house collapsed. And, and the question was, how did you know that this was the time to do that? And the commander didn't have an answer. The commander just like, I just could feel that we shouldn't be there any longer. And it was only after interviews and figuring things out that they realized that there were some details that, that had subtly been picked up on, that the water wasn't getting the fire out, that the fire was really hot and unusually quiet, and that all of that had actually signified that the water was, I mean, the fire was deep and was like basically destroying the foundations of the house. But the commander didn't know that's why he came to that conclusion. He just knows he has a bad feeling. Because this commander had actually experienced like hours upon hours upon hours of firefighting, had experienced what normal fires are like, had experienced the occasional unnormal fire and what it meant. His brain, at a subconscious level, this intuitive side, had picked up on the pattern. Because actually that's what that other system is. It's an amazing pattern noticer. Pattern recognition. It's, it's why a really good quarterback is able to just in a moment know that he's supposed to throw to that particular wide receiver. It's not like he's doing this careful analytical geometry or whatever. He just knows the pattern. This is the thing that I should do right now. It's, it's pattern recognition. It's, it's why sometimes if you are in a conversation with someone and they're starting to sp speak to you, you know, they're about to tell me something that I don't want to hear. You just... No, because you have been in conversation after conversation and you are able to pick up on subtle clues. Your intuition picks up on the pattern. And that's what was happening with the firefighter, that his intuitions, he was able to recognize in the very background, though it wasn't at a conscious level, quiet fire, hot fire, water not working, bad, let's get out. It's amazing what our intuitions can do. We, we would not be able to survive without the way that our brain can process things. But our intuitions are not equally good at everything. This is one of the things that Kahneman points out. Since our intuitions are pattern recognizers, if we are in a situation where we've never had a chance to recognize a pattern, if we're in a situation that's incredibly complex, or a situation where we just haven't had enough experience, our brains just aren't able to figure things out very well. So, 
Kahneman lists all sorts of examples of this. That a number of political analysts, experts, people with PhDs are asked all sorts of predictive questions. Like, do you think Russia will invade Ukraine? Or do you think the economy will go up or down? Like, 60 questions that were yes or no. And five years later, when it was assessed, they were right less than 50% of the time. In other words, a monkey would have been more accurate. Or you have multiple studies where you have traders who believe that they can beat the market in terms of figuring out what stocks to buy or sell, and they never do, no matter how confident they are over time. Or you have uh, this example that he gives of this team of people who were meant to assess whether they thought future candidates for the Israeli army were officer material or not. They had an hour, an exercise to watch, and they came to their conclusions. And looking back later, their conclusions were basically a coin flip when it came to accuracy. And the reason that each of these were intuitively so not correct so often was because the brain had not had a pattern that it was able to assess. It's not like it had seen 17 times that Russia is bordering Ukraine. Six of those times it happened to say, okay, now I know this is one of those times. That doesn't work. It's way too complex, way too many variables. When you're having an hour to look at what a soldier will be and you haven't seen years, you don't have enough time. It's too much. The interesting thing, however, is that even though the intuition just did not have the capacity to be accurate, it didn't know that. When it was trying to answer a question it couldn't answer, it just globbed onto something it did know, like, I like this guy. And because that felt confident, then the answers that these people would give to these questions came with a lot of confidence. In other words, when the intuition comes against something it can't solve, not only is it wrong, but oftentimes, it's confidently wrong. So let's just now kind of come back to the question I asked a moment ago. Given that this is the way our gut, our feeling side of processing truth works, is this question, the question of the reality of God, something that our intuitions are capable of assessing well? Daniel Kahneman's study would say that the answer is if your brain has had sufficient chance to see a pattern. If, for example, you have lived in like six realities, three of them with God, three of them without God, then you probably can start getting a sense of whether God is in this reality or not. But otherwise, your brain doesn't have what it needs to come to a conclusion. Our intuitions naturally, and I'm talking naturally, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that's another conversation, our brains naturally are not able intuitively to know a question this complex. Now, it gets even more complicated when we try to think about how much we can trust our feelings, because the thing about this intuitive feeling side of things is we like to fit things according to what our desires want. So we're constantly taking in all sorts of data and information. And if we have a desired outcome, we will filter where the things that we pay most attention to are the things that we most want to believe. So if you are about to engage in a project that you really would love to do, by and large, you will probably not pay too much attention to all the reasons why you shouldn't. You will focus on all the good, optimistic, positive. And so because of that, as you think about what you might do, you feel hopeful. I can do this. Even if that's not actually what the data would tell you. 
Or if you have a group of people that you want to belong to, then oftentimes you have a desire to agree with them. You will listen to the voices that agree with this group, and you will oftentimes not pay attention to the counter voices. That's what's happening in our country, where more and more people are only hearing things that confirm certain things so that everyone is absolutely confident the other person is wrong. There is a way that our brains kind of fit the information to our desires. So here's the question to ask, what if one of the reasons that God doesn't feel real in our day is because our culture, our society, doesn't want him to feel real? What if we have collectively, as a culture, sought to surround ourselves with indicators that we are at the top of the pile and have systemically removed any counter-evidence that might teach us otherwise? If that's the case, there's even less reason to trust that what we feel is accurate. Well, let's hold on to that question as we now jump into our passage. We are in chapter 5. Uh, a, a few decades after where we were before, you might remember, if you were here last week, we had this really fascinating testimony of Nebuchadnezzar himself sharing about how while he was king and while he felt he was so awesome, God humbled him, made him like a beast until one day he confessed that God was Lord and he was brought back and brought to his sanity. It is now multiple decades later. Nebuchadnezzar himself is dead. Daniel is in his 70s. And Nebuchadnezzar's great-grandson, Belshazzar, who sometimes is, you know, he talks about Nebuchadnezzar's father, but that just means his ancestor. Belshazzar is now the king. And the thing we should recognize about Belshazzar in this passage is he is confirmation bias guy. That is, he has decided what he wants to think and has eliminated any other evidence besides that. So historically, we are in a moment where Babylon is still the world power in that area, at least. But it's not clear for how much longer, because things are starting to get a little bit touch and go. The Medes and the Persians have combined forces, and they are now at war with Babylon. And there has already been a battle where Babylon lost. And so now there, is, there are hints, there are rumors that the Mede and Persian army is going to be invading the city of Babylon itself. And if they prevail, that's game over for Babylon. And so what does Belshazzar do in this situation? What would you do if things were touch and go like this? Perhaps you might have the entire city on alert, nonstop watches, people ready to fight at a moment's notice in case the armies come. Or maybe at least you would be gathering all of your military experts together and coming at some brilliant counter-strike so that you can prevail against the Medes and Persians. What does Belshazzar do? Well, verse 1 tells us, King Belshazzar makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drinks wine in front of the thousand. He's having a party. Party invites a thousand of his closest friends and he gets drunk with them. Why? Why would you, when you are in this moment of great danger, decide, let's have a feast? Isn't a feast the kind of thing that you do when you're safe and secure? Yes, and that's the point. Belshazzar 
Belshazzar is convinced that he is safe and secure, or at least he very much wants to believe that he is safe and secure. He wants to believe that he is still in control, and so to reassure himself and to convince others, he has this great party. And in fact, you almost get a sense that he's not yet feeling awesome enough. And so he decides after kind of soaking it all in, seeing all these people, drinking the wines, like, I've got an idea. He gets one of his assistants to bring the sacred goblets from the temple of Jerusalem. The, the goblets that belonged to the god that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar defeated. And he passes out the goblets, and they all get some wine, and they all drink, and they all feel like gods. I am awesome. That is what Belshazzar is creating. He is, he is giving himself, surrounding himself with that feeling. It's not, it's not even just the party. It's not even the goblets. Think about, think about the thousand people that he's gathering around him. How do you think they think of him? How do you think at least they speak to him? They say ridiculous things like, oh king, live forever. Do you know the kind of person that Belshazzar doesn't have around him? Daniel. I mean, did you notice, as we get to this story, and a little bit later on, we have this situation where, surprise, surprise, Belshazzar needs some good counsel, can't get it from anyone, and the queen says, hey, what do you think about that guy that was super awesome a while ago? Maybe we should ask him. And the question, of course, is, where has he been? Like, why wouldn't you have him on your council if he has the Spirit of God in him? And the answer is because I don't really like Daniel because he says things that I don't want to hear. See, Belshazzar only wants to hear people who think he's awesome. He only wants to have things around him that make him feel awesome. And can you imagine what it would be like to be Belshazzar? To constantly be reminded around you of your greatness. To have everyone showing you great respect. You would feel great. Now, the funny thing is, as I've thought about it, we actually have more in common with Belshazzar than we probably at first would recognize. I was thinking about it. We, we actually surround ourselves with icons of our own power. Uh, you might not recognize them, but think about this. I have access to more information here than Belshazzar ever could. And you know what? I have just turned down my furnace. It was a little too hot anyway. I mean, I can do all these things. I can talk to anyone that I want to. Like, I won't, but I could text one of you right now, right? So I have power right here, and it's not just that. I've got, I've got this. I have access to a fortress where I can be comfortable and secure and have food and my remote control. I have access to my chariot that is able to go faster than any chariot before, going where I want to go. And it's not just that. I also have this. It, with a swipe of a card, I can get people to do my bidding. I have these icons of my power, and most of us do. And it's not just that. If you think about the internet, how it says we can customize reality to you. You can choose whatever you want. We go into the city, we see these great skyscrapers that are testaments to how awesome humanity is. You know what we don't surround ourselves with? Things that remind us of our creatureliness. Like, for example, think about the way we treat death. We try not to talk about it. Many of us try not to think about it. And when people are dying, we try to hide them away from our view. Or how often do, does the public converse about the possibility that there might be a God who is in control, who is the one that we owe 
things to and who will judge us. If we talk about that in public, we are seen as a nutcase because that's not the kind of thing we want to talk about. We surround ourselves with certain things of what we want to believe, and the result is we feel a certain way. We feel more in control than we actually are, and we feel like we're at the top of the pile, and there really isn't anything else. That's what belches our experience. That's what we experience, but here's the problem. Reality will break through at some point, and that's what happened here. We're told that as they're just drinking and feeling godlike, suddenly, well, suddenly there is a human hand, which is weird, right? Because if you're thinking about kind of this, this frightening, terrifying moment, you might go to something more dramatic, like, like a demonic dragon breaking through the ceiling or a fiery angel with a sword. But no, you just have like this human-sized hand just kind of floating, and it's just kind of writing like 15 letters inscribed in the plaster on the wall and a lamp on the other side, and everyone's just watching this hand, which on one hand isn't terrifying, and yet on the other hand it is super creepy, right? And, and Belshazzar, I mean, he, he loses it. It talks about how the color of his face changes. He becomes like deathly pale. It talks about his thoughts alarmed him. It starts racing. And, and then it talks about well, the ESV says, and his limbs loosened, which honestly is a polite translation. It literally is his loins loosened. In other words, he soiled himself. I mean, he lost in every physical way control of the situation in that moment. Why? Why would a hand do that? Because that hand was a sign that his carefully cultivated reality was a lie. That hand was a sign that there was someone greater. There was something beyond the world that he had become so sure of by his own design. It's like if you have like one of those great houses of cards, right? That can be this nice tall tower. All it takes is like one card and everything collapses. That's how his reality felt for him in that moment. He tries to recover. He gets all of the astrologers, the wise men, and he promises them great power. He tries to be king. And all the wise men say, I got no clue. And so it says he's even more terrified in the moment. He, he can't recover from this. I, I, I've thought about what, what would be the equivalent, and I feel like sometimes we see something similar about reality breaking through, sometimes with death. So we've talked about how sometimes we try to insulate us from that reality because it reminds us that we're creatures, that we're mortal, that ultimately there's an end to this life, but it breaks through, right? I mean, and sometimes someone close to us is diagnosed with, with a terminal disease or we're diagnosed with a terminal disease, and sometimes... For a person, it is like a collapsing of a building because suddenly reality breaks through and it is utterly terrifying. That, that's how Belshazzar responds. And so the queen mother comes and, and as we've said, he, she says, you know, that guy who, who's like super, super smart, he'd be kind of useful right now, wouldn't he? And so Belshazzar agrees and brings Daniel in. And it's really not long before you realize why Belshazzar really didn't want Daniel. Because Daniel's like, you can have all of your stuff. I am not interested in any of it. But I will tell you, I will tell you what these words mean. And as Daniel, by the power of God, explains these words, it is again like 
like a window opens up. See, we've, we've said, the book of Daniel, the first six chapters especially, there is this awareness in the writer that there is this other reality. There's what we can see. There's our carefully curated surroundings, and then there is something else. There is, we might call it a spiritual reality, a heavenly reality. There's something more. And in each of these chapters, there's a certain moment where there's a window that opens up. If, if, you're, a, if you're a Marvel fan, think about like with Doctor Strange, how he makes that circle. It's like something like opens up and there's this other reality that for just a very brief time you have access to seeing. And that's what's happening as Daniel is looking at the words and describing. It is, it is this window that opens up to this reality that normally we cannot see, but it's very much there. And so Daniel describes these words, mene. He says, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And in that day, Babylon would have seemed eternal at times, would have seemed inevitable. But, but here as we look through this window, what do we see? We see that there is an almighty being that is there. And it's like he has this massive daytime planner and he has... Babylon's scheduled, and he has even written the day of when Babylon will fall. Just like he has written that for every country, no matter how powerful it seems, for every company, no matter how everlasting it seems, for every movement, just as he has written the number of days for each of us. He has numbered the days of Babylon. And Daniel looks at Tekel. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. As we look through this window, what do we see? We see that this almighty being is one who judges. That is, he, he weighs the human person who is accountable to him. He assesses, and he knows all. He, when he weighs Belshazzar, he, he knows who Belshazzar is, he knows what Belshazzar has done with his life, and he assesses whether he has done what he's called, and it says, you have been found wanting. As we look through this window, we are meant to understand that while we oftentimes are preoccupied with the question, what do I think about God? The one that really, really matters is what does God think about you? And finally, Parson or Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, you will experience judgment. In other words, no matter how things have felt to you, in a moment, reality will break through. And it did. That very night, it says, he was killed, Babylon was destroyed, and the Medes and Persians began their reign. And as we look through this window, we are meant to understand that that is always the way things are. It doesn't matter who you are. You might be a ruler, whether you're Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin, or whether you're just one of us, whether it's you. No matter how confident we are, no matter how sure we are of how things feel, in the end, reality will break through and we will realize that that is the only thing that matters. And so what our passage is calling us to do is to recognize that how we feel is not 
what should drive us, but what is true. And of course that raises a question, because if we're saying that our intuitions are not naturally built to be able to figure this out, how do we even know what to think? And that's why I think in some ways one of the most important parts of our passage comes right before Daniel interprets the words of, that were written on the wall. Because right before, I don't know if you noticed this, but Daniel spends a while before explaining these four words giving Belshazzar a history lesson. He says, Belshazzar, here's what you already know. You know that your father, again, talking about his great-grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, was great. That God gave him power so that whatever he chose would happen. He was above all, except once he lifted his heart up and thought that he was great, this same God humbled him and brought him low and made him like a beast until finally one day Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and recognized that there is one God who is most high over all and confessed it and he was brought up and was able to be restored to his place. This is what happens, Daniel says. And then notice, very importantly, what he says in verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew. It's not that God left you just to try to figure it out himself. God showed you. You know, you have the story of what happened to your great-grandfather. You know what he himself wrote down as a depiction of what took place. You recognize that he was humbled. You recognize that God brought him up. You recognize both that there must have been a God who did this and also there was a God who was merciful enough to restore him. You knew all of this. And yet, what did you do? You shut your mind to it. You didn't want to think about it. It wasn't something that fit the narrative you wanted to believe. And now you are experiencing the consequences of rejecting what God has shown you. So here's the point. God has not just left us to just figure things out on our own. God has stepped into human history in the very same way he stepped into human history at that time. He stepped into human history 2,000 years ago, stepping into this world, into the Middle East, becoming one of us, Jesus. And he, before many witnesses, performed miracles. There were like these windows to this great kingdom that God was bringing about. He went to the cross showing just how passionate of a judge God is, where he hates sin and he's going to deal with it. And Jesus rose again before witnesses over five. 500 people testified to having seen the risen Jesus showing that this God is conquering over all. We know. If, if you this morning are not sure whether to treat that as reliable, I am very happy for us to sit down. It's a legitimate question, but I am confident that we have every reason to believe all of these things took place. We know. And what's more, God, when he did this, he showed us something even more precious. He showed us his heart, when he became like us, he entered into our sufferings. And, and he showed compassion and he brought healing. 
When he went to the cross, he entered into our sin and our shame so that we might be forgiven. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death that we might be rescued. And, and he has made a way for us so that no matter what we have done, no matter how we have arrogated ourselves against the Most High God, we are invited to come, to humble ourselves and experience forgiveness and love. This is what we have been shown. And that means if we are willing to step outside of our very faulty intuitions and instead just receive what God has shown us, we have the opportunity to do something that Belshazzar never did. We have the opportunity to humble ourselves before the God who is real, to turn to him and experience his love and his forgiveness because he is our God and he calls us to be his people. And I invite us, whether you are someone who has walked with Christ for many years or if this is maybe your first time, to do that even now, to spend time just acknowledging before God how we have failed him confessing and turning to him for forgiveness because he promises to forgive all of those who call on him. Let's spend some time in, in silent prayer responding to this God, and then I'll lead us in a couple minutes' time.